Good morning. This is the 3CR Garden Show. I hope you're all awake and ready to have a good listen to us. And we've got Tim Sampson and Greg Balderston in the studio with me, Virginia Hayward. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Virginia. Good morning, everyone out there in Radio Land. Isn't it good to be back live in oh, the studio? It is such relief. It's just really pleasant to be able to see people again and even maskless. Yes. And it's, what, is it second or third week that we've been back live? Yeah, third. Third week? Yes. Yep. And no, well, it was a great series of... Fourth. Fourth week. Okay, so I did from time to time roll over in bed and listen to some of the, um, the, the pre-records from last year. I must say it was a bit odd from time to time to hear my own voice when I, I was lying in bed. I was lying in bed one day listening and I thought, oh, who's that? And of course it was me, because you don't listen to your own voice. No, you don't, yeah. And I don't tend to listen. If I've listened or done it, I don't tend to Well, I don't, I don't want to hear what I said. No. <laughs> Hopefully someone's getting something out of that, but I don't want to. And good morning, Greg. Good morning, Virginia. It's nice to see you. Uh, it's been... A, a very long time. Such yeah. a long time. Yeah. I think this is the first time I've driven past Sunbury in over a year. Uh, in this direction, yeah. That is totally So, So it was, uh, I left a little bit earlier this morning just because I didn't know there's often roadworks pop up when you least expect it and because I hadn't been down there so long. And it's been sure more than a year was. since you've seen <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there, was, uh, there was plenty of roadworks, so I'm, I'm glad I left a little bit early and and uh, made time for that. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been well over a year, I think, since I've come down this way. And I don't know about you up in Macedon, but in the Yarra Valley we have had so much rain. It's, it's been absolutely... been an amazing season, yeah. Divine. Yep. Yeah, it's the, well, I'm down the Mornington Peninsula, so we, we kind of traverse Melbourne, the three of us here. Yeah. And, yeah, it's been an amazing year. I mean, it, it's... I live right next to the bush. You guys live near the bush too. Fires are always a risk for me. In every year, anxiety builds around fire season. This year, I've had none of that really. Grass has stayed green. Are you right near diggers? Uh, So I live on Arthur's Seat. Yes. So I'm up up the hill. My my cousin has a place there and there is a lot of bush. There's a lot of bush and we're right next to the state park. It's a wonderful spot. We Mm. live at the end of a dead end road. It was actually through lockdown. It was a wonderful place to live because there was bush right on our doorstep. I've got my garden to play in. I I count myself lucky. I know a lot of people had a lot of trouble through through lockdown, Um, but I was pretty fortunate to live where we live. Mm. I was very naughty and enjoyed lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think... uh I, I, it didn't. Uh, there was definitely a lot of uh, changes, but uh, uh, just from day to day life, it was pretty easy to to yeah. cope with being in, as you say, in a, in a lucky enough area where you can. Um, I actually had a, a letter from one of the um, uh, mycology uh, laboratories in Melbourne, so I, I, I had actual a letter so I could go out into the forest even. Oh. <laughs> so if someone said, what are you doing out here? You know, it's supposed to be locked down. I actually had a letter saying that I'm collecting uh, info for a, a lab, yeah. Yes. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was easy from day to day to, to cope with definitely being uh, able to be in, in one of those areas where mm. you can get out and be in nature and stuff like that and you don't you well, know. that's the thing. And see, my garden's four acres, so I couldn't complain. I didn't have enough space to wander no. around. No. Plus, I've got the Warburton Trail there, so I'd go out on the trail. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of, in, I think in every suburb and every situation, there was people finding solace in their gardens. Yes. I think I read yesterday somewhere that there was a survey of people, uh, 
they surveyed 40 odd thousand people across across Australia about their habits through lockdown, and 37 percent of respondents said they were, were gardening, were active gardening. So that's mm. nearly 40 percent of people who were surveyed turned to gardening as one mm. of their activities through the lockdown. And it was a good year for it too. Okay, so so like if, you're, if you're coming in as a first year gardener <laughs> yeah. or first time gardener. Which might be a bad thing. No, no, I was going to say, we, we shouldn't be saying, we should, we, you know, we should be lucky that. We don't go and tell them this is a really good yeah, year yeah, yeah. because then they'll frighten them off. Yeah. You know? So it's, this is how it is always. Yeah, every yeah. year it's this, yeah. this lovely and benign and it rains every couple of weeks yeah, and, yeah. you know, summer's green. Yeah. Exactly. I, I think this is the first year in quite a few that I haven't looked like I was about to run out of water at yeah. this time. Mm. I usually run out of water. Now one of my pumps has failed, so I can't water the garden anyway. Oh, so you've it, got water, but you can't move but it. I can't move it. It, it's yes, a, it was a know. very strange season too, in as much as I think it was 2010 was the last time we had a lot of summer rain. Mm. But it was, I think, later in the in the summer. We still had the dry spell in sort of spring and early summer, and then it rained heavy right. in January and February. Where this year it's it's started raining in what August or something mm. and, and, just hasn't and just hasn't and we had stopped. It, it was kind of running on every fortnight cycle mm. for a while. We're getting twenty or thirty mil every fortnight. Yeah. But the first time in the sixteen years I've been in Seville, I had a reading on my rain gauge of four inches. Yeah, I just really. Couldn't believe it. I mean, that was over two days, not one. Yeah. But nevertheless, four inches. It's never filled up to that right. point. I, I use had my to wheel. Leave it for weeks. To I use my wheelbarrow that. as a rain gauge, <laughs> and um, and it was nearly full one morning when I got up. <laughs> so I knew that we had quite a, quite a lot of rain the night before or the day before. Yeah. It's funny you say that there was. It, it, that 2010 was the last summer rainfall uh, or big summer rainfall. Mm. We moved into our house that year. And we're on tank water. We don't have mains water. Yeah. And that first year in, it rained enough for us to not to have to buy water. Because yeah. I've got a couple of teenage daughters, so yeah. water, water goes pretty quickly. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and so the first year, I was like, wow, this is great. We get free water all yeah, the time. Yeah, But every other summer since that, we've had to buy water. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Except it's for this year. So, so 10 years does, that. that's a real... Um, Benchmark. Yeah, actually. yeah. How many tanks have you got, Tim? Just one. So it's an underground tank. Yeah, I've it's got one underground and five. Have you? Uh, so I never run out of house water, but I run out of garden water quite, yeah. quite regularly. Mm. I'm pretty tight on water. Um, and actually, I've brought in today the Diggers Club magazine, which is our new magazine, which is going out right now. And there's an article in there that I've written about my garden, um, where the front half of it, which I've titled The Never Watered Garden. Because I basically don't water it. You know, I water it to establish things. Tim, can but you I can't. explain to our listeners where you're working? Because sure. You've, yeah. Yeah. You've okay. Been and gone, and then come back. That's right. Yeah. So, um, so I've I have a long history with the Diggers Club. I was um, was working there for 13 years, uh, and uh, in various roles, starting at the Gardeners at Earth and uh, up in Blackwood, and then working at HQ in Dramana, uh, working at Heronswood and at our production site. Uh, and about four and a half years ago, I decided I wanted to have a look at something else um, and worked and, wor- and went and worked in uh, ecological restoration with a company called Australian Ecosystems, uh, doing wetland installations um, and was growing, growing the plants for the wetland installations. Uh, a lot of those big um, 
so associated with all the, the housing developments and commercial industrial developments, they, there was a requirement to build a constructed wetland as part of the, the water management of the of requirement these. of the planning authority. Planning authority, Melbourne Water. Uh, this case goes back 20, 30 years when they were cleaning up the bay, and mm. a lot of the issues with bay pollution was runoff coming out of industrial and, and domestic housing. Um, so that was that was a fascinating area to work in because I'd, I'd been in. 30-odd years ago, I did environmental management, so I was kind of revisiting something that was in my past. That would have been really interesting. So you get catch up on all the new developments and thoughts. Yeah, yeah and, and see how professional it had become. Like, yes. this is big, big big business now. You know, there's lots of these constructed wetlands are big dollars and they're, they're associated with big housing developments, so there's money and there's, there's well, professionalism. Well, it is partly right. because they insist on building on places that really are too wet to build, don't they? Well, yeah, and they've got to do all this hydrology work and they've got to, you know, and then, then to protect the creeks. But then, and there's a whole heap of stuff around that because then you've got, like we've had this year, big pulse rain events mm. where you've then got to capture this pulse of rain somewhere in the landscape so it doesn't, you know, run straight into the bay. Rain gardens. Yeah, and, and mm. big scale. I mean, a wetland effectively mm. is a big scale rain, rain garden. garden. Mm. Uh, so and when you think of what they used to do, I used to teach at Brunswick High and one of the kids there um, had run away from home and nobody in the school knew except that I found out. And he lived on Mooney Ponds Creek. Now, Mooney Ponds Creek and when I was a child, Gardner's Creek, were both beautiful Mm. And now they're bloody drains, concrete mm. drains. Well, this was a, this was a phase that planning went through, um, where they you concreted the mall, make it run fast and get, get rid it of gone. It. Yeah, yeah. yeah, shocking um, idea. Yeah. Well, completely the inverse of what of, we should be of, doing, of yeah. what we should be doing, and what they're now doing. You know, and of course, this is the conversation. There was a wonderful program on the ABC on six two one this week on the burning in southwest Western Australia and how they're just destroying Aboriginal trees and all sorts of things because they're burning, and they're burning often, and they're burning hard. This is the state, mm. uh, supposed to save people's houses, but in the process, they're destroying things that and are... And it often makes it worse in the long run, too, because yes. then you've got to burn constantly because what comes back is the stuff that is flammable and, and, and makes a lot of rubbish quickly. And yeah, they're creating a fire. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. This is the 3CR Garden Show. If you would like to ring us... We have a text number, 0488 809 855, which is a new invention for us, a text number, which is a great uh, asset for us. So this is the equivalent of what was the outside line used to be? No, no, the text just comes straight through to our screen, which is absolutely fabulous. And, And we have two numbers which have gone off the screen which makes my life twice yeah, as difficult, which is nine... Oh, good. Back on the screen. The talkback <laughs> number... Sorry, everybody. The talkback number is 94190155, and the off-air line is 94198377. So do give us a ring if you wish to talk to us in the studio. It's 94190155. And that text number is... 0488809855. Now, my skills are not quite up to Pam's levels, so if, they, um, if the texts come through hard and fast, no doubt I won't be able to keep up. <laughs> but nevertheless... I'll keep an eye on the, on the screen for you. <laughs> <Good> <laughs> <on> you. <laughs> and, t- and today we are going to do a subscriber line. We're going to ask people to subscribe. So do think about subscribing to the station because 
when you think about it, it's a wonderful station and we need money to stay alive. So to support The Garden Show and to support 3CR, subscribe and to subscribe, ring ring in on 9419-8377. Can I just say on that, that, you know, the value of 3CR radio in this garden program, and I'm not saying this because I'm on the show, but this garden program is by far the best garden show on the radio that... That I, that I have access to. I agree. And the reason is because we have so many people involved. I it's mean, always a different yarn, I always something to learn. I can't tell you how hard it is to do the roster. I, what Pam used to do, I have <laughs> so much respect now that I'm trying to do some of it. She certainly made it look easier. She did make it look <laughs> easier. And it's not. It's not. <laughs> and the roster is a nightmare. Mm. But the reason it's a nightmare is because we have so many people. There are people who are very busy and donate their time and actually juggling and come from a long way. Mm. You know, there's but I think, like you were saying earlier before the show, that the diversity uh, is one of the, the key points because if you're not into Tim and I this week, then someone else is going to be on next week yeah. that you might find really interesting. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And so we get, uh, and I try to combine people, I try and put somebody who's particularly good on natives every week, spectacularly fail today, um, I'm good at native fungi. <laughs> yeah. Very true. I'm good at plants that are native to earth. <laughs> <laughs> me too. And people come into me and say, oh, have you got a native garden? I say no. And they go, oh, exotics. I say no. It's an interesting discussion, though. I think, I, um, I, I, as I was just, just saying, I come from a um, natural resources background, an environmental management background, so natives was my heartland. Um, but I've transitioned over the years to be, I've gone through, I sort of went through phases that, well, I still do quite a lot of food production and gardening from an environmental point of view doesn't have to be around natives. Mm. In fact, why, why are we so dogmatic about natives versus exotic? It's well, I say to people, oh, well, this plant's from New Zealand and they mm. oh, that's not native, no. And I say, no, it's but it's closer to Western Australia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and in fact, it's, it's, I mean, if I look at the sort of plants that are in, in, in the garden I was talking about earlier, which is the dry garden, they're all from a band around the equator, which are yes. similar, or well, a band around... The Mediterranean. Just, yeah, 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 Mediterranean, they're at similar latitude to See, where I we live. It, so I that's in sympathy with how our, our environment is. I have huge respect for people who grow stuff that is endemic, stuff that grows in yes. their area. Yeah, yeah. And I try and plant, I've, it, I've moved and I try and plant more and more stuff that is endemic to the Yarra Valley because that clearly is really important. Mm. But I refuse to believe that those beautiful Western Australian plants I've got in my garden mm. are any more... Those hybridised Western Australian oh, plants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are any yeah. more... I mean, and my salvias yeah. have brought the birds. Yes. I had no small birds when I started, and I have so many small birds now, mm. and it's absolutely wonderful, and the salvias are part of that, and the grevilleas. It's a mix. Yeah, yeah. It's a, and, and as you say, a lot of that stuff works for the, for the native birds and, and insects as well so if something works in the garden and uh, um, you know adds something to the wildlife in your area then that's not a bad thing it's probably a bad thing if it escapes into the yeah. native habitat well, <laughs> that and that's, that's to, absolutely true I think yeah. that we have and to I be think as gardeners ve- conscious of that very mm. important and mm. everybody should be going around cutting off their agapanthus seeds yeah. Immediately. Yeah. yeah. For and the, example. And there are lots of them. Mm. My way in particular, there's lots of agapanthus getting in. When they, and they sort of they start in creek lines or roadsides. Uh, somebody and went and planted a whole lot out in the street near me. I was just stunned. I thought that was mm. appalling. I've got a couple of announcements to make. 
The first one is the Begonia Society. Today, are having a plant sale from 10 till 3 at Moorabbin Senior Citizens Hall, which is 964 Nepean Highway, Moorabbin. The Melways is 77 DG. And it's entry by gold coin, but you must BYO your bags. They are not going to provide you with bags, which is an excellent thing. So that is the Begonia Society plant sale. So I hope some of you can pop down there today. That will be fun. The other announcement is for next weekend, the Fernie Creek Plant Collectors Sale. This is the 6th and the 7th of March from 10 till 4 at 100 Hilton Road, Sassafras. Entry is $5. The garden up there is... There's a very big garden for you to walk around if you haven't been to Fernie Creek before. And it's a beautiful garden with heaps of stunning South African plants and heaps of stunning Australian plants. um, So as well as the plant collector sale and you get things at Fernie Creek you won't get anywhere else. There's small growers who grow really specialist stuff turn up for that. I know Merrill will be there from, um, from Gippsland and there'll be a lot, of, a lot of really interesting things to buy. So try and get there if you can. 100 Hilton Road, Sassafras. And today the first five people who subscribe to the station, become a subscriber, will get a pass to Fernie Creek, a double pass to Fernie Creek. Now, if you're not going to go, don't take it and leave it for the number six or number seven. But there, there are five free passes to Fernie Creek next weekend. So do subscribe to our station because we need your support. And if anyone wants to ring in on the talkback line, it is 94190155. And if you want to ring in to subscribe, the number is 94198377. Subscribers, 94198377. So you're particularly looking at the occasional fungi, Greg. Um, I haven't had much of a chance to get out of, of late, actually, but they, they, they seem to be out there because the, uh, all the fungi Facebook groups of uh, loaded with pictures at the moment, so there's certainly stuff around at the moment. But which, um, which is quite early. Is yeah, yeah. Usually, um, certainly in the last few years, you might not see anything till March or April mm. um, of any significance. And it basically didn't stop this year. Like there was always the few times I have been out for a walk. Um, there's always something at the moment. Um, but, yeah, as, as it cools down a little bit, you get the more the mycorrhizal ones. And, uh, so, is, so is the trigger for the fruiting bodies on, on fungi in the, in the forest, is it, it, it's not day length? or is, is it, What is it that triggers them? Because, like you say, normally fungi season or mushroom season yeah. is around Mother's Day. Sort of I, I think, like, like plants, it's, it depends on the species, I guess. So... Mm-hmm. so um, uh, you, usually for a fungi in a certain environment at a certain time of the year, the weather does a certain thing and it might be a combination of things or it might mm. be one of those things and it's only on the years where you might get more rain but it's still warm yep. that you'll see the fungi that's triggered by moisture yep. or more from the moisture and then, um, uh, you know, things... Uh, you can get quite cold weather but no rain and... Others, you know, some other things pop up and then others don't. So I guess it, it, it talks to the amount of diversity that's out there. It does, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, things... I, I, I'm 
I think the, the, the sorts of fungi that break down tree logs and things like that need a little bit of moisture to get going in a, mm. in a dead old bit of wood. Yes. Um, but the stuff growing on tree roots uh, might sort of kick into action on slightly different, you know, they're, they're probably more looking at what the tree's doing uh, yes. or the plant's doing that they're living on or living with. Or living with, and that, yeah. and that, that mycorrhizal association, that root. Uh, yeah, that's probably yeah. yeah. So, so that the you know the plant that it's hosting on, or that it's living with, mm. is um, probably a little bit of a kickstarter for it too. But um, and then you know there's there's other fungi, the uh, Acero rubra, one of the it looks like a starfish uh, mm. in in the forest, and they hatch from little eggs. They're very alien, bizarre looking things, and you can get those nearly all year round, depending on the weather. But usually up at Mount Macedon, I see them in December. Like if you get a late rain, uh, late, late, late spring when it's warm and, mm-hmm. and you'll get you know, heavy uh, thunderstorm and cool weather for a few days and these things hatch out of these eggs on the ground. Um, the aliens in Yeah. And, and, and this year they were popping up most of summer, so in yeah. different spots. But, um, well, I think of fungi, close association with moisture, I think. I mean, I suppose there are those that like, like a dry soil. Yeah. But the more activity or biological activity, moisture drives mm. biological activity. So the more rain we've had, the more action we have. It's usually when they, the fruiting bodies come on them. As I say, the, the like cool climate rainforest fungi, um, a, a more you can almost time to them because those ecosystems... A, a little bit more stable, okay. so, so they do the got certain a things. Pattern, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, mm. But the the sort of fungi that you find out in a really dry, sort of woodland, open woodland sort of forest, where where it you know might rain, mm. you know, in September, and then the next time it rains, it's in May or something. Uh, if it rains out of season, those fungi they'll, get they'll going just, very go. quickly. Yeah. yeah, they just take yeah. take advantage. They'll take advantage of when it's and happening. just like plants, you know, yeah. a lot of plants do in that, that too. same kind yeah. of ecology. They they, they right. move with the cycles because they so, they have to boom bust for yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. So so they get to and do what they need to when they need to do it. I've got two huge ones in my front underneath the pine trees. They're well, pine mushrooms. I pres- I don't know. Are they the orange ones? Yes, they're an orangey brown colour, and they're and they're as big as a, a bread and butter plate. Yeah, right. They're absolutely yeah. divine. That because I get pine mushrooms near my place, and and it's which are the edible ones. Yes. Um, but they don't normally come for another six weeks or so. I know mm. these ones yeah. are terribly early. I get them every year. I used to get people trying to come and collect them, but I didn't particularly want them to, so I didn't let them. And well, of course, I don't know actually what they are. So, if it's the whether I can eat them or not, I'm not. Well, sure. and, and well, well, it doesn't take the, the chance. The saffron milk caps is yeah. they're very orange. They're yeah. quite orange, and they grow yeah. green. Yeah, 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 and they they have a latex in them. So if you snap them, they sort of uh, bleed out, sort of fluorescent orange, milky substance. So they're, they're, they're probably one of the easiest mushrooms to identify as far as edibility goes. Well, I'll, um, um, they're so I'll distinct. have a look. Like, they're, they're very distinct. And there's no, there's no um, nearby yeah, there's, relative there's one, dangerous. There's one that is really <laughs> dangerous, but it's, it's easy enough to, if you know if just a couple of the basics, it's, mm. it's pretty easy to tell them apart. But, um, and they're cl- also known as pine mushrooms, they're always as far as I've seen, they're always associated with pine trees. Yeah, yeah, so they, they, they grow um, occasionally. I think they've 
that they can grow underneath oak trees. I might be getting that confused with the amanitas, which you don't mm. want to eat. Mm. <laughs> yeah. um, but and also to the especially with the mycorrhizal fungi, picking them doesn't actually hurt the the uh, the mycorrhizal mass underneath. So it's just like picking which, an apple off a tree. So which is a very important thing to know. Yeah, yeah. So so there's there's uh, I know anyone mycologists that are collecting mushrooms. Um, you know they're not actually hurting no, the, not, the, the mass that they're growing the, from. Yeah. from. But when it does become a problem is in, you know, somewhere like Sanitarium Lake up at Mount Macedon when there's a lot of people visiting, um, if everyone goes and picks off a mushroom so they can identify it and look at its underside and sniff its stem and try and get a proper ID, if everyone did that, then there'd be no fungi left for the next person. Mm. So if you're in a high-use area, um, it's probably a good idea to, you know, you take a little mirror with you or something to ID them rather than a little, picking them off. A little compact off. mirror. I yeah, yeah. Some people yeah. Use. So you can or a dentist a, mirror or something yeah, like that. So you can look, because yeah. the gills on the underside are often a really good identifier, yeah. yeah. So so it's, as I say, if, if you... So we need some sensitivity. If you're in a big park and no one have, not many people come through and, and there's 500 of these fungi on the ground, picking one's not going to matter, but if... There's 500 of you, it will. If there's 500 yeah. of you and two mushrooms, then it's not going to hurt the mushroom so much because there's only two mm. mushrooms there to, to pick, but then no one else gets to see it. And it sort of, is, yeah. Is, um, um, the, the fruiting body is a, a tiny part of the organism. And I'm not sure, and everyone, everyone thinks of fungi that is, is the fruiting body, but that's really a tiny part of its life cycle. Talk yeah. a bit about how big and how, well, how it, active it is. Again, it depends, on the, it depends yeah. on the species too. You mm-hmm. can have um, um, you know, something like a cordyceps, uh, a, one of the parasitic fungi that uh, infects insects and turns them into zombies and, and whatnot. They're really interesting. Oh, I hope they do it to mosquitoes. No, no, it's usually <laughs> it's usually grubs in in Australia. Oh. They're wood grubs and oh. and things like that. So there's one that grows up at Mount Masson, at least. Anyway, it, you tend to find it underneath um, one of the acacias up there. Um, I think it's still barter. And so the life cycles, but basically the grubs sort of lived in the tree and it goes down into the soil to to turn into the moth or whatever it comes out as. And at some point, it's eaten some of the um, the spores from Cordyceps gunnii, and that spore turns into a mycelial mass in the insect's stomach, then slowly takes over the whole insect, and once it's in position in the ground, which is usually a few inches underneath the surface, the the fungi kills it, eats it, and then grows this massive club out of its head up above the ground. <laughs> so you find these things; they're a few inches tall, and they're just—it's just like a green. It's like a almost like a weird giant green matchstick or something mm-hmm. just poking out of the ground it's, yeah four or five inches tall sometimes and and um and if you carefully dig them up that you'll find the grubs still attached oh, to really? the bottom of them okay and that's the whole that's the life cycle so they're like that's annuals the tiny, tiny yeah tiny, tiny it's just that in, in, yeah and that's the, the whole mycelial masses mm-hmm. inside that grub and mm-hmm. then the so the, the actually in that case the fruiting body's Usually bigger than the yes, rest so. of the mycelial mass, yeah. Um, and th- and that's one of the problems is that a lot of the cordyceps are looked at as medicinal, and so people will go into the forest and dig these things up, and mm. that can cause a lot of 
harm to the forest floor when there's all these pits dug into the ground and they're removing the whole yeah and the whole re- thing removing the entire organism fruiting body mycelium yeah, mass yeah. and everything yeah. yeah and and it's it's probably more so the damage that's caused to get to get the grub out of the ground because yeah. um, mm. sometimes they're you know you know 10 20 30 centimeters down into the soil so mm. um, and they want to get the grub out and most scientific uh, research done on them suggests that they're not that particularly so the medicinally... So the potency yeah. of the medicinal factor yeah. is not that strong anymore. Anyway. And the ones that are, that come from the Himalayas, have caused, you know, people have been killed over, you know, because they're worth so much money. The Cordyceps chinensis, I think it is, is worth so much money. People will kill over them because it's like finding gold. If you've got a little patch of mm-hmm. some hill and you're and you used to herd goats or, or grow something on your little patch of soil on the side of a hill and all of a sudden everyone's digging up all these cordyceps everywhere and, and the erosion's increased and if you find one it's like a year's worth of, of income just in one little right. bug. Um, That's and totally extraordinary. Yeah, and if your Actually. next door neighbours found five of them, you, you go, well, how come he got five and I got none? And yeah. This is the 3CR Garden Show. I'm hoping some of you are going to ring in and, and ask us a good question. The talkback line is 94190155. And I'm also hoping that some of you will subscribe to the station. To subscribe to 3CR, you help us keep going. You therefore have a say in how the station is run. It is $30 concession and $75 full cost. So if you can subscribe to us, Ring in on 94198377 and the first five people will get a pass to the Ferny Creek Horticultural Society Plant Collectors Sale next weekend. So to, to subscribe, 94198377. To talk to us, 94190155. Thank you. So, yeah, it's, it's, I think it'll be a really good season this year for fungi. So if you've got any, any interest in it at all, there's, um, it, and you've got a local little park, pretty much anywhere where, where things are left aligned and yes. there's leaf litter and yes. dead, a few dead sticks and logs on the ground and things like that, um, I think... And it's another reason for leaving things... Yeah, on, on, the, on the ground. To be a little bit messy. Yeah. If you're yep. a little bit messy in your garden, you'll get much more... Think, it, many more things happening. It's, it's always odd when... You spend so much time picking stuff up and then you've gone fertilise the garden and it's like, well, if you left the stuff on the ground, <laughs> that turns the, and let the fungi do its thing. Yes, um, you're fertilising That's where the, the fertiliser comes from. Yeah, mm. it's, it's pretty much fertiliser. So well, uh, We've got a, a, a green waste bin system in, in our neighbourhood, as many do. I've never had one. Mm. I've never... I don't want to get rid of the, the mass, the biomass from my place. Yes, I've got a pile up the back where I put it and it gradually goes down. Mm. And, and but what about your agapanthus seeds? I don't have any agapanthus. But say you place. did. If I did. Then yes. you, well, I mean, because well, that for me is the problem where I've got, I, I have not managed to remove all the agapanthus yeah. um, around me. And but there's a point there too. If you put the agapanthus into your, your, your you council waste, yeah. I mean, They'll do some hot composting, uh, but will they get rid of all that seed? What you do, though, is the bin that they supply you with to put the green waste in, you put the agapanthus seed heads in there with some water and just let them stew for a couple of years and then just tip it out on the garden bed somewhere. 
Actually, that's exactly the thing to do. Yeah. Yes. And or, your wandering Jew. Yeah. Or any anything that's that's any seed. Like you basically just got to sterilise the seed yeah. in 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 some way. And if you're good at doing compost heaps, you can and you can get it up to seventy odd degrees or something, and that'll do the trick. Mm. Um, and if not. Stick it in a bin with some water and leave it there for for a year or something, yeah. and then tip it out on the garden somewhere. Now, Greg, you've brought in some flowers. Do you want I to have. Tell um, me what you've brought in. Well, the first thing I'll talk about are the are the colchicums. So I've I've got uh. I've brought in several types. Um, colchicums are a little bit like galanthus in as much as a lot of them look exactly the same. So, and what would people call them if they didn't call them colchicums and galanthus? Um, I'm autumn, not really sure. Autumn crocus. Autumn crocus. crocus. I think that's the. I think well, one autumn crocus though, because yes. they're spring. They're, they look like so. For those who know what a crocus bulb is, um, which is like a saffron crocus grow in spring, these are bigger and autumn flowering. Well, some of them well, are bigger, some, some of them, some of them are quite too. small. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess it. it Autumn crocus is probably one of the more confusing names because there are actually autumn crocuses as well. <laughs> so there's, you know, some in the, in the genus crocus uh, that also flower at, the sa- at this time of year, and some of the colchicums flower in winter and spring as well. So that yeah, there's never a nice common no. Rule these in common names are quite confusing <laughs> often. I, yeah. Well, common names for me have been very confusing because what the common name in Britain where I lived for 20 years will not be the same as the common name here mm-hmm. and that is actually what drove me into Latin names yeah it, it certainly makes things a little bit clearer much um, clearer except that people still tend to use the common the names. common names mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, and and obviously even the the uh, the scientific names can get a little bit confusing as well, especially when they're changed every which three they weeks, do, which they do a lot. <laughs> but the thing is, if, if you know, say you bought a bulb 30 years ago or something and the name's changed two or three times since, the name that you bought it as, as long as it was the correct name, it'll still lead you down the right path to find information on that bulb. Yep. So don't stress about it too much. Yep. I mean, if you're writing a scientific paper or, or, more importantly, if you're selling bulbs as well, Actually, the scientific paper is probably more importantly, but yeah. Um, yeah. So if you're doing something where you're writing a book or or doing a, a paper or you're selling them, it's probably a good idea to try and find out what the current well, correct name is. I think that's very important, and it does irritate me when I go into places like Bunnings and they have plants for sale that have no Latin something name. Li- something Lily. Yes. Yeah. Or generic <laughs> labels. Yeah. Like you say, it'll be this. Twenty different lilies for sale, all different colours, or say little blue genuses, red, or yeah, lily species. Yeah, yes, or or not even you know, it could be not even anything in the lilium family at all. It's Mm. uh, lily seems to be thrown around as a common name quite often, but yeah. So so you know, if you've got these things, trying to find out what the correct name is is quite fun if you're into it. Um, But I wouldn't stress too much on it. As I say, if if you want to find out what it is, you can, Um, and yeah, you, like trying to keep on top of what the the, the most recent uh, name change for some of these things is. Is, not, is very is, hard. And Stephen it's sort of not takes funny. Great, great pleasure in being on top of this. Yeah. It is. And, and they go and change and then change back. And you yes, need yeah. to be like Stephen is, looking yeah. at it all the time. time. Well, and as I say, Stephen's, you know, in the in the industry, so that's... Mm. But I, I think a, lo- a lot of... Um, private collectors and people that want to get into these things, when they see an argument on, say, Facebook about 
the naming of something or someone's used the wrong name, it's really off-putting. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's that gatekeeping that often keeps people out of getting into these things. So it sort of takes the joy out it of does. gardening yeah. a bit when yeah. you start to become pedantry, a Pedantry yeah. isn't fun. No. <laughs> well, but but it, is, it is important. It is important when it's important, but... If you're getting into bulbs, don't be don't be put off by whether you've got the right name or the wrong name because half the fun is finding out and the most why you've got the wrong name or why you've yeah. got the right name. And the most important thing is whether it looks beautiful in your garden. Yes, yeah, yeah, which, yeah. which these culture gums definitely do. They're wonderful. So yeah. so yeah, I've got, I've bought in a, a, a little bit of a collection of them, um, most of which I've forgotten the names because they do all look alike. <laughs> and the only reason I do know the names is because my pots at home have got tags in them. And I assume the birds haven't flicked them out and I've put them back in the wrong right. pot. <laughs> yes, which is quite possible. But, but there are some that are a little bit easier to identify. Um, so some of the more common ones you'll, um, you know, you can pick up from somewhere like Tonkin's Bulbs or, um, you know, some, some of the people that do sell the, the more interesting was, stuff. was Jane Tonkin who was in last week and they do have an amazing mm. array of bulbs. Mm. So some of the more common colchicum species that you can get at some of the, from some of the local bulb growers is uh, a little one called colchicum agrippinum which is, a, I think it's a, a hybrid of a, a wild species and they get at most about, I don't know, 8 to 10 centimetres tall um, they've got quite thin petals and beautiful tessellated purple uh, flowers that sit fairly close to the ground. And the autumn flowering colchicums come up with their flowers. So you can actually have them. I've got one here that I've, I've dug up for a friend um, that you can just see the flower emerging on it. So you can literally have uh, the bulbs sitting on your windowsill while they're flowering it's wow. probably not best for them. They're best yeah. in the ground by this stage. No, well, they do need to put a root down at some stage. Yeah, but, but if, if they're dry, because they come from a similar climate, a, a lot of them come from very similar climate to what we have here, that Mediterranean-type yeah, so, climate. So winter rainfall, summer yeah, drought. Cool, wet winters yeah. and hot, dry summers. Yeah. Um, the, the roots come out when the moisture's there. Right. So, but the flower's not dependent on the moisture. So the, the flower can often mm. come up and do its thing and the bulb's still pretty much dormant, and as soon as that water hits the ground, and sometimes literally within hours, it will send out roots. Right. Um, I remember working on uh, the flower, uh, flower farm when I was younger, and we'd dip uh, Dutch iris and tulips in uh, fungicide before we planted them out in the ground, and the hour or so it took to dip all the, all the bulbs and put them in the big hopper to plant out in the ground... Some of them had grown roots, especially the Dutch iris used to grow mm. a centimetre or two in an hour That's or so. Amazing. So the roots are just blast out of it. This is that opportunistic thing that yeah, like, yeah. Like we were talking about yeah. fungi. Right? Yeah. Bulbs, plants will do it the same. Yeah. So no. Time's on, so let's go. Yeah. Just going back to the fungi, somebody has, has texted in, can you re- recommend a book or two about fungi? The, the, it depends what you want them for, but I'm not a big eater of fungi. I, I much... I'm much more into just seeing the, the native species out in the forest and what they do. And I would say for identifying, the, one of the best ones is the Tasmanian field guide, um, That especially if you're in a cool, cooler climate. Um, yeah, so if, if, you, if you're in a, you know, up in the Dandenongs or at Mount Macedon or up through East Gippsland and, and anywhere where there's, you know, Moisture. eucalyptus regnans forests mm. and tree ferns and things like that, then the Tasmanian Field Guide is probably one of the best ones. Uh, 
Bruce Fuhrer's also got one. I think it's Australian Fungi Field Guide. Um, trying to remember the names of the actual books. Uh, and Give me the name of the author, and then somebody can look it up again. Bruce. Bruce Fuhrer. Spelt. Uh, like you would expect it to. I think it's F-U-H-R-E-R. Right. Um, and so that, I think that's the Australian Field Guide. And there's also one um, written by, I think it's, I think Joy Kluska was one of the ones that uh, authored it, and it's on central Victoria, which is a good one for drier forests. So that those other mushrooms that we're talking about that sort of, you know, a, a day, after, like the five hours after it rains, they're already up and doing their thing. Um, so, yeah, the, the fungi of central Victoria or Bendigo region, I, th- I, th- I think it is. Um, and that's a good one for the drier forests. Um, uh, as far as reading about fungi... I've found that one. Fung- fungi of the Bendigo region. Yes. A Guide to the Identification, Joy Cluster. Yep. So and that's fungi of the Bendigo region. And another good thing to have often, especially while you're out walking, are some of the, the, fo- the flips, so the fungi flips, which are basically like a, a folded-up poster, and they have a lot of the more common species on them. Um, are there uh, any apps for fungi? There are. I, I, there's actually a really good one, but I don't use it because I think it's only on iPhones. I think it's an, <laughs> it's an, Apple, it's an Apple app. Um, and there's, there's certainly, um, like websites like Atlas of Living Australia is a really good one. There's a lot of, uh, information on there that actual mycologists use as part of their studies. Uh, they can access these, uh, um, you know, the, uh, people go out, take photos and can download these things onto, onto the websites and actual mycologists use them for information. Yeah, the, the iFungi, I think. I've just pulled up iFungi. I think some of my photos are on that, but I, I've never used it because oh, really? I don't think it works on Android. <laughs> yeah, well, this is an iPhone app, yeah. iFungi AU, Mushrooms yeah. ID. Australian and there are, some, there are some other good apps. I can't think of any off the top of my head because I, I, I haven't really used them, I've got to be honest. Um, but I, I think they're still quite useful. And that's the other thing, the same with plants, is that you don't want to rely on one, one app source. or one yeah. book. You want to have... Uh, two or three books and an app and the other good thing is the actual fungi groups on Facebook because um, somewhere like the Victorian Fungi or the Tasmanian Fungi Facebook group you can post a picture on there that you've taken and you'll get answers from uh, amateur mycologists that have been doing it for years but also you know people that have written doctorates and things on, on mycology um, is, surely that's the, the best way it you're is getting, getting I think it is actual yeah. Yep. Real person. It's not yep. an algorithm. It's not a. But, it, but again, photo. instead of because obviously, if you just join one of these groups, you don't know which ones are the actual mycologists and which is, mm. you know, um, Brian from down the road that's that's uh, seen so- seen something on YouTube and he knows every fungi that's ever existed. Mm. So so you've got to, you but know. But I think those Facebook uh, those Facebook pages that are for. People who are enthusiastic exchanging yep. information are just fabulous. Yep. Yeah, and the same with the bulb. Mm. The, a lot of the bulb groups as well are, are really good. And, and uh, now we have a question, which I think also from our texts, could we suggest the best way to save tomato seed? This is from Kim. Oh, okay. That's so okay. one for you, Tim. Good timing on the question. That now is the time of the year. Clearly, it's been a um, well interesting season on tomato seeds. 
and I can talk a bit about the um, the trials we've been doing at Diggers. But to answer that question simply, um, tomato seeds are, are relatively easy uh, seed to save. There's no particular, um, you know, with some varieties of, of vegetables or seed saving, you have to exclude pollinators as part of the growing process to keep true to type. Um, but tomatoes will come true to type from just from a fruit that you can pick. We don't have to do any pollination protection to ensure that. Um, it's as easy as picking a fruit, um, squelching up that fruit, putting it in a, a jar of water. Um, so maybe and get as many fruit as you want. Don't mix different fruits, different no. varieties. You know you want to keep your varieties true. Um, uh, so you squelch that up with a bit of the pulp, a little bit of water. And, and let that sit for a, a week or two until it develops a bit of a fungal film or a, a what's a mouldy kind of film on the top of the water on top of the water. So you get this sort of it goes it sort of goes to mush and you get a bit of a film of this um, uh, like penicillin. Yeah, or something it's like a like penicillin. That, yeah. So it so it, it and that actually will inoculate the seed a little. So it'll it'll actually help it store and it helps break down some of the the gel that coat that sits around the seed itself. Um, and then once that sort of that process has gone for a, a week or two, um, you can then strain the seed out, uh, strain strain it away from the water, wash it uh, clear of all the all the um, the moulds, uh, and just put that on, on a piece of paper. Um, uh, newspaper's fine, tissue paper or something like that. Something actually something that's not going to stick to is better. Um, so a sort of a, a shiny paper can work quite well too, uh, and just let the seed dry out. Um, and once the seed's dried, you can then pick it off that, that bit of paper and store, store it. Store it and then plant it. And then plant it again. And the, so there's a, that's, that's the technicality on how you save the seed. And there's so the thing that's different there is putting it in the water for a week. Yeah, so that, that process, if you, just, if you just pick the seed out of the, of the, the fruit itself uh, and then dry that off, which I have done, and it, it has worked. And it does work. You get better result though if you if you do the if you soak, if, it, if you soak it and you do the, the moulding across the top. Um, it you'll get better strike rate. You'll get cleaner seed, um, and it and it I guess it pre-germinates. Well, it doesn't pre-germinate the seed, but it, it predisposes the seed to germination. It takes that inhibitor off because there's an inhibit, inhibitor in the fruit. Yeah, that it stops of, it germinating. A lot of different seeds. Uh, I know uh, a lot in the aroid family. The the seeds, if you don't clean the coating off properly the germination rate goes yeah. down a little bit. Which makes sense because um, you don't want the germination to happen in the fruit, the initial no, fruit. No, I mean, And, and it, it also sometimes. mimics, I guess, a little bit maybe some animals that would eat those seeds in the wild and, and distribute them and their stomach acids, cleaning all those things off and then... Yeah, all uh, those, all those natural products, even just dropping on the ground and rotting. Yeah. Um, which is, I mean, if you've got tomato seed, you've grown a tomato crop and you've had plenty drop on the ground, mm. you'll get a bunch of seedlings coming up. Yeah. Uh, I planted an air, I, I made a new um, vegetable bed for the three sisters. So I had corn, pumpkin and um, seven-year se- um, beans, beans in there. Yep. Got tomatoes all through it. Yeah. <laughs> the compost. <laughs> well, and it will come from the compost. But there's, what I was going to say too is what's important to recognise or to understand when, with your tomato seed is if you, get a, if you just get a tomato from the supermarket, for instance, they'll often be a, an F1 hybrid, a first cross hybrid, uh, which means that when you save seed from that, it will re- the, the progeny will revert back in all sorts of different directions. You won't get a consistent... True to type from the from the seeds the, the seed you've collected, um, with an, and that's because they're commercially grown. The seed is commercially produced by an intentional cross, and it, and it's good for that generation. Now, what an F1 it's called an F1 hybrid. What that does is provide 
spectacular uniformity, mm-hmm. which is great for commercial uh, cropping. Um, but then you get this you, this incapacity to 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 get a next season of of a consistent um, a consistent progeny with what's called an open pollinated varieties, and all of our heirloom varieties are open pollinated. They are they will breed true to type. Um, so you'll get a direct response. Well, you'll get you'll get genetic diversity, but you'll get a much, much, much closer um, next generation to the generation you've just had. And ma- maybe even something that's a little bit more suited to the climate that you're growing in it at your own house. And so this is the point of collecting seed: yeah. is that you know if you're growing a, um, a tigerella tomato at home, uh, and of that, so you might have ten of them. Oh, you might have. Might have fifty of them. I don't know how big your mm. garden is. You might have two of them. Might I don't have know. Two. <laughs> yeah, but if you have one that's particularly successful, uh, you and, and you pick you seed. pick that one for mm. seed, and then you've actually started your own selection of tigerella, mm. and then year in year out, oh, and I have a selection of Wapsipinicum peach, which is a um, a, um, a peach, a yellow peach type of tomato, which I've collected for three or four seasons now. And it's and I'm seeing some slight differentiation from some of the some of the um, other lines of, mm. of the round. So I'm kind of generating my own, and that's a little journey one can go on if you, if you're working with. In fact, this is what an heirloom seed actually is. When you think about the concept of the notion of an heirloom, it is handed down from generation mm. to generation, and only open pollinated varieties can be done in that way. Um, I have a chili like that. I for years I've tried to grow chilies. And keep them during um, through the winter, and I've never no, never succeeded. And then Clive Larkman gave me a chili, said this will do. It comes from the high Andes. It is fabulous. And it gets all the way through the winter. It gets yeah. all the way through the winter. It keeps producing. It only stops producing for about three months of the year. Yep. So I have more chilies than I know what to do with, but they're beautiful as well. And it's a very big plant. It's huge. Yep. And. It, it is now getting distributed around the Yarra Valley. Yes. For all those other people who want chilies in their lives, I've got. <laughs> I mean, some people hate chilies, but I love them. I I never do. I nearly ma- bought you some down because I've got a lot too, and, and I didn't know what to do with it. And I thought, oh, I wonder if Virginia would like some of those, and I'm glad mine, I didn't now. <laughs> mine are very. I got a glut too at my place. <laughs> mine are very round, so they're yeah. like they're, they look like a, a little capsicum, and I find they're not the best for making chili oil and things like that. You know, they don't dry as well mm. because they're very fleshy. Yeah. Okay. But they're brilliant in my curries. And, yeah. and having lived in London for 20 years, you know, I'm a girl that makes curries. <laughs> <laughs> now, that person who wanted to know about the fungi has come back again saying they wanted a book about fungi as a study. So they want a general book about fungi yeah, so, so rather than I, identification. The some. Uh, Ones that are put into like a narrative story mm. and are actually a really interesting read, not just a list of names and pictures. Mm. Um, I would look for Alison Pulio's book, um, which I can't remember the name of. And also, there's there's a, a recent one that's recently been released by Merlin Sheldrake um, called Entangled Life. I think it's called. What a great name, Merlin and Sheldrake. Yeah, yeah. Surely and a wizard. Well, he he's and been. And how would you? Sp- Bill Alison Poulier. Um, <laughs> swat there. Uh, let me check. I'll because I don't want to get it wrong. Um, no, you, you keep talking about the other book, and I'll check. Okay. Um, so yeah, the Merlin Sheldrake one, which which I've started reading. Someone gave it to me, and I've started reading it, but I haven't quite got through it all yet. Um, is uh, you know they're ecology books essentially because. One thing that usually links up 
a habitat is the fungi. Yes. I mean, so, the story so anything, of fungi is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, well, uh, maybe, Greg, what we'll do is I'll get you to text that through to Stephen and get him to announce it next week mm-hmm. because he'll be on next week. Yeah. So if you text that name of the book through to Stephen. Well, well the, the last one's the, the Merlin Sheldrake book is called Entangled Life, I, uh, I'm, well, I'm fairly easy. certain. Entangled Life. And, and that takes a more ecological point of view. Like yeah, well, 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 as I say, because that's, that's what mycelium do. I mean, there's, was it Susan Simia, the, the forester in the US? Um, so she was, uh, has been working on how trees talk to each other yeah. or how forests communicate with each other. Yeah. And it's mycelium yeah, that are yeah. heavily involved in, yeah. those, in those conversations. I, I don't know if, um, I think it's the, th- the same one. She's the one that used, I think, small amounts of radioactive uh, material yeah. and put it on one tree and then it popped up in nearly yep. all the other trees of the same species. And her name is Susan? Susan or something? I'll look it up. Hang look on. it up because there was a wonderful program again on... Um, on the ABC 621 about her. Mm. Susan Simard. S. Uh, S-I-M-A-R-D. So that... Suzanne Simard. Suzanne Simard. She's in Canada. Yeah, British Columbia. She has done the most extraordinary work on trees and it's very mm. connected to fungi. So Susan Sim- Suzanne Simard. S-I-M-A-R-D. And, and if anyone's read the book Overstory, which is a, it's a novel... Um, and it runs the, it, it's a story of trees in their interaction with humanity. There's a character called Patricia Westerford in that story, which is based, based on, on her. Susan, yeah. yes. Suzanne. Yeah. And you can both have a look on 621. For the, the, I heard it fairly recently. It was a brilliant program about her and her work on trees. But as you say, it's very, very linked up with the mycorrhizae, with the fungal. And she was, she was uh, quite... Um, she was ostracised she was by the industry. Yeah. For years, and now mm. now she's a positively a mm. god in the industry. Yep. So, and and with Alice, Alison Pulio is probably one of the best people I've ever heard speak about fungi. She, she's got a certain way about um, describing what they do uh, that it's it's it makes you want to get involved with it. She's she's a really good communicator. Um, oft, often her uh, little events and talks and workshops that she do, they're, they're generally reasonably, reasonably expensive, but worth every cent. It's one of those things where... And you know, is she, she's based in... Um... Well, I, I think she spends half the year in the Northern Hemisphere. She basically follows the fungi season around the world when she can, I think. Um, so I've, I've found her, uh, her last name spelt P-O-U-L-I-O-T. Um, and she has a really good website um, where you could probably find out about her book. Um, there's also one of the fungi flips that I was mentioning before is made for the Wombat Forest, and I, I think Alison's the one that, that um, put or helped put that together. Um, and I got mine from the Dalesford Info Centre. I think it was about $7 or something. So those fungi flips, they're sort of laminated, so you can take them out into the wet forest and... Mm. I've got one of those. I, when I lived really in Earth, I did a uh, it was a forest workshop where they mm. took us and out. Are they something that are available in the diggers' shops? Do you think? I don't know. If we can get the diggers' shop at the moment. I can have a look into getting them in there. But yes, do because mm. be especially for St Earth because it's warm about forest. Well, and yeah. also not far from the Garden of St Earth is a sighting of a very rare fungi, and it's one of the only sightings I think in Victoria where they found it. And it's I, I went with a couple of mycologists to go and look for it one day, and we didn't find it that day. 
but it's a short walk from okay. the Gardeners and Earth. We actually parked at the car park there and right. walked down in the forest for a few hundred metres uh, to look at this particular tree that right. has this little weird um, spiny-toothed fungus sort of uh, Ooh, thing growing at the base. Yeah. Can I just say that is Alison Puglio, P-O-U-L-I-O-T, and if you pull up her name, it'll, you'll find workshops, her biography, something on Gardening Australia. So it's worth and, and she does these amazing... You'd find them on YouTube. She does these amazing videos of... Um, sometimes they're narrated and sometimes they're just beautiful photography and time-lapse. Um, yeah, amazing little short, short movies that she puts that out every like, now and again. That sounds better than looking at cat videos. Mm. Now, somebody, one of our producers, has come up with Alison Puglio, The Allure of Fungi. That's it. Uh, yeah. The allure of fungi. <laughs> That's the one. So fantastic. So and, and as I say, there's there's um there, there's a movie that came out not long ago too about the uh, fungi kingdom, which apparently was quite highly regarded. Again, I haven't actually had a chance to see that. I don't think. Um, but uh, Hollywood blockbuster. Well, <laughs> it was more, yeah more of a as far as documentaries go. I think it was it was I've heard up about there. It. Yeah. Of Remember it, so. And and uh, there's a lot of Australian photographers and 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 um, uh, amateur mycologists that take photos and video and all the time lapse photography for a lot of these things. So there's a guy called Stephen Axford too that's an Australian photographer who takes the most amazing photos. There's a guy in Queensland called Paul Vallier, um, Mycelia Magic on Facebook and Instagram, and just the most. Stunning images Greg, that you'll ever see. And if somebody wants to go onto your Facebook, what, how do they do that? What so uh, Facebook's just my name, Greg Boulderston, um, and certainly coming up to the fungi season, there'll be probably plenty of fungi photos. And are you <laughs> taking walks? Uh, I hope year? so, yeah. Yes. I, ho- I hope to. There's, so the, previously I, I've just sort of done them by myself, but hopefully this year I might be able to work with one of the local um, uh, mycology labs and maybe do a, like a fundraiser type sort of events rather than, you know, me just trying to get a little bit of pocket money. It, it might actually, you know, be for a good cause or something like that. So, yeah, hopefully I'll work with... Uh, and, and again, those... So one of the labs in particular um, that I'm hoping to, to sort of uh, organise some of these walks with this year is um, uh, Mycommunity Applied Mycology, which have really good information as well. So they have websites and Facebook pages. Myco. So it's uh, M-Y-C-O-M-M-U-N-I-T-Y, and it's a, a, yeah, a My Community Applied Mycology. And they do talks on fungi edibility and, oh, and workshops on cooking fungi and that sort of thing, as well as, um, you know, they often do workshops on how to, collect fungi for scientific research so like actually you know making sure you sterilize your knife and and containers and and don't trape spores from one forest to another of invasive species and all this sort of thing so um they're they're really good one one of the really good places to look for info as well i'm going to make our announcements again because people will have come on who were asleep when i first made them Good morning to you people. Today, this is the 3CR Garden Show, and today the Begonia Society has a plant sale from 10 till 3 at the Moorabbin Senior Citizens Hall, which is 964 Nepean Highway, Moorabbin, 
which is Melway's 77DG. BYO, your bags. So that is the Begonia Society plant sale, 964 Nepean Highway today. And next week, Fernie Creek Horticultural Society is having a plant collector's sale, that is the 6th and the 7th of March, 10 till 4, at 100 Hilton Road, Sassafras, with a $5 entry. They have a beautiful garden, so it's worth giving yourself enough time to walk around that as well. So, and if anyone would like to ring in and talk to us, it is 94190155. The off-air line is 94198377. And there are five free passes to Fernie Creek if somebody would like to subscribe to the station. To subscribe to the station means that you become part of the station. You do something to help keep free radio and you also help keep this particular garden show going. It's $30 a year for concession, $75 full, or $150 for organisation. It's a very important thing that you might do. You will have access to the station. You will have access. You will be part of making the decisions about the station. And you'll keep this radio station, this particular program, the 3CR Garden Show, going. You brought some... Things in as well. I have brought a couple of little bits and pieces in. Um, I've brought, and I've put some pictures of these on the Instagram page, so if people want to have a look at what I'm talking about, uh, you can have a look at some photographs there. Um, But this time of the year, (coughs) pardon me, this time of the year is a time when the summer flowering perennials in our garden start, oh, they're probably at their peak really, but then sort of coming off their peak. And some of the rock stars of the garden are the autumn flowering things. I mean, yes. it's autumn tomorrow, technically, on the calendar. Um, but the season is starting to move into this, this, this cooling phase. And one of the real, real highlights of this time of the year in our gardens are the sedums, or stone crops. Actually, technically, I think these, this, this group are now called the hylotelephiums. We're talking before about how names keep changing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's we important. all know them as sedums. We all know them as sedums. It's important that when we, as sellers, as at the Diggers Club, we know what they're called, and you'll, you'll see them listed as that. But we all know them colloquially as sedums or stone crops. I've got four um, four samples here, four um, selections, and, and there are sedums. There are hundreds and hundreds of stone crops out there. A lot of them are tiny little succulents. They're really diverse they're and very useful. Very useful. <laughs> they're, they're, and useful in the garden, useful as pollinators, or, pollinate, or, not, or pollinate, pollen, pollinator um, attractants. Attractive. If anyone's got a sedum in their garden at this time of the year, you'll see they're covered in bees. Mm. Um, and at a time of the year when a lot of other things are starting to wane in flower, these hold the bee populations for the next month or two. Um, so, what, so sedums are a, a succulent leaf plant that, uh, and, and these varieties that I'm looking at here, the, the hylotelephiums, are herbaceous too. So they will grow in the summertime and then they will die back to a crown in the winter and come again uh, really, they're quite dramatically herbaceous because the, the, the flowers or the, the leaf and flower stems that are produced over the summertime remain into the winter as these lovely sort of browned off um, skeletal elements mm. of the garden and you'll often see photographs of um, Dutch gardens or English gardens in the middle of winter where there's frost and mist and there's these beautiful sort of... With the, with the Brussels sprouts underneath. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. They're the little Because they come from a little bud yeah. in, right in the, in, the, in, the, in the crown. And of course, unlike us, they don't have much that is actually winter flowering. 
So no, it that's right. It's terribly important in a British garden to actually have something so, like a seed yeah. to keep some sort of interest mm. going. Yes. Whereas, yeah. of course, my garden is absolutely fabulous in winter because the grubilias are in flower, the wattles yeah, are in the flower. Yeah, the corrias are in flower, yeah. So, it's season. So, 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 so chop have, off your, your I have cinnamon. 31 camellia plants. Yes. And they're yeah. all in flower. On, on and on they go. So, we're much luckier than. We are. But they are spectacular for this time of the year when they're in flower. They're I think fabu- and the bees adore them. Yeah, so. So I've got four varieties here. I've got one called Bertram Anderson, which is a beautiful dark burgundy stem. It's got a, a dark purple leaf, uh, and it is a, a short form, so it's quite a low-growing form. we we'll only get to 20 centimetres high and will spread a little bit, um, but it's got this sort of really rich burgundy kind of colour. Uh, then we've got the classic, which is probably the one that's most commonly known, which is uh, Autumn Joy. Uh, and named for its season. It's got a slightly crenulated leaf, so it's got a little leaf margin with some, with some um, rough edge. Uh, a, a clear green sort of chartreuse kind of stem, and then, a, a, then when the flower emerges, it's, it's pink, uh, sort of a dusty pink, and that'll go to a sort of a, a deeper colour. And which one you particularly see in... It's the, probably mm. the most common sedum that you'll see around. You'll see it in garden centres. it's quite big. Yeah, it's quite big. These things... So one of the virtues of these sedums is they don't need any water, really, at all. I mean, this is, these fit into the never-watered garden I yeah, was talking yeah. about before. Um, and, in fact, if they get too much water, or if, it, if it's like a season like we've had, they can actually get a bit rank and flop over. Mm. Uh, and and they're they a classic for the... the um, where you can chop them. Their first flush of growth... In, if you chop them just before Christmas, mm. it'll actually compact them, and then the flower will be lower, ah, okay, and yep. you'll be more. So you don't get that rank, floppy growth, yeah, which, yep. which you can get in a, in a soft season like we've had. So autumn joy is probably the most common. And Tim, we have a, a call online, which is from Jill in Malvern. Hello, Hi. Jill. No, what have I done? Ah, I haven't pressed that button. Sorry about that, everybody. Jill, are you there? No, I still haven't. Oh, well, I'll keep going on the, on the, the last two sedums I've got here. Um, I've got uh, one called uh, Abbey Door, which is got a slight pink hue to the stem, uh, similar sim, similar spike or wavy leaf margin to Autumn Joy, but a, a much stronger pink colour in the flower. Mm. So I think and, that's rather good. I like that and the first one. Then, and that's Bertram Anderson. I think Bertram Anderson. And then the last really one I've got, which I'm saving for last because it's my favourite, uh-huh. is one called Matrona, which, which is a combination of that sort of the, the dark burgundy that comes in the stem, a more dusty coloured pink flower. And, it, and, and you'll see in the photographs that I've put up on the Instagram, it's, it's more see-through. It's sort of more three-dimensional. Um, it's, perfectly, um, it's a perfect companion for grey leaf things like some salvias. Yes. I plant it with uh, Aeonium velour, which picks up the... The burgundy colour in the in the in the stem and in the leaf margin, uh, and just and because because you, you can see through this, see through Matrona, it stands a bit taller. I like. I it, love. It really gives that three dimensional. Mm. Yeah. I've used the Autumn Joy at Forest Glade this year to hold up the dahlias. Ah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yes, yeah. I had a, a whole row of them in front of the, the days on what we call the cricket pitch lawn there. Um, and, yeah, all the days get a little bit high and start to flop forward a little bit. Yep. And these sedums are... Because they're quite stiff. Yeah, they are, yeah. yeah. And, they, and they're doing a really good job at the moment of holding the dahlias up. So. Well, and, and then you've got a good complementary flower too because your dahlias it, yep. are in full, full, it's full bloom really right well. now. Yeah. Mainly by accident, but it's worked really well. Oh, no, well. come on. It was completely <laughs> intentional. Yeah. Jill, Jill from Melbourne, would you ring back, please? I managed to lose you somehow. I'm very sorry about that. 
And now we're going to line eight, which is root. They're quite useful too in different. You're listening to Community oh, Radio. Okay. Root's not ready yet. So, and a lot of the other sedums aspects. So those ones, I'm assuming, prefer the sunnier. Uh, Absolutely. These all take sun, they'll take dry, uh, and basically little other attention. Yeah. So, yeah. But, but so some of the ground cover ones, are, uh, again at Forest Glade, there's an old um, cast iron uh, lawn roller, for like an old tennis court roller, beautiful yep. thing. But one of the, the barrels actually made out of two parts, and one of the parts got a, a big chunk sort of smashed out of it at some point. Right, yep. So I filled it up with dirt, and... I've put one of the little variegated ground cover sedums in it. Yes, yep. No water, just sitting in the middle of the lawn is this nice little thing with this uh, billowing sort of cascade of, uh, of foliage out of the top of the, ro- of the, of yeah. the old roller, well, and those, it looks great. Those little small leaf ones, there's, like, there's a jelly bean one, you know, um, which is rubrican, mm. and, the, and they will happily work as little rockery gardens, you know, yep. little, little intricate plantings. Mm. So there's, yeah, like I said before, there's that many sedums around there. There's, yeah. uh, there's, I've got a book at uh, home which is probably like as yeah. thick as the Bible. And, and they use uh, a lot of them for the living walls and yep. things like that too, sedums are, or, you know, Textural rooftop. plantings, even some of those, I mean, you think sort of those classic or the olden days, the, the floral clock. Mm. You know, uh, sedums, the succulents that are used mostly for those. Yeah, they're, they're, they're with the, quite useful you can get such plants. different colour in, in foliage uh, and form. Very fun. Yeah, the, the, the other thing about them too, the numbers I mean, they yeah, look wonderful yeah, floral clock, but using the, the because they're a, a succulent, um, you know, quite fleshy and they're quite they're quite hardy to 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 you know, resist drying out. They actually work really well as a cut flower. Yes, and, yeah. And because they're a long straight stem. Um, you can clean off the bottom of the stem, the stem, pop them in a vase, and, and they will last long for, lasting for a too, couple yeah. of weeks. Yeah, you know, they're still looking really good. Yeah, they're good at, good at holding the flowers together too in the vase, I'd imagine. Well, because for the same reason they are for your daily. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're effectively stakes. Yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. We so now have a call from Ruth in Bentley. Ruth, are you there? No, I don't seem to have Ruth there. We're just trying to get you there, Ruth. So another, while, while Ruth's coming along, I've got, as per usual, I always bring in an oxalis. I can't, can't not bring in something in the oxalis family. These are two, I've bought two in this year, uh, this, this time, uh, which are the South American sort of varieties, which tend to be more, often tend to be more summer-growing, um, uh, fleshy, and quite large, and um, so the two I've bought in are, are um, one called uh, Oxalis, I think it's Depii Iron Cross, and it's got quite a large leaf, fairly green, um, but a, a, a splotch in the middle of the four uh, leaflets that's basically deep burgundy red, and the flower's also this beautiful, intense sort of salmon pink colour, quite a dark salmon pink. And even if it didn't flower, it wouldn't matter because no. the foliage on it's amazing. So if you've got quite a big pot of them, the the foliage is basically like a big pot of shamrocks yeah. with a, with a drop of blood on in the middle of each of the four leaf clovers. And just looking at that, both of these that you've got here, they're quite reflexed. Is that is that a function of the fact that they're picked, or is it a function of that they do that at night time? Yeah, they, it's a. I think. Um, if they get once they get daylight on them, I think it's a it's a light response. Yep. So the the flower probably tends to open up a little bit on mm. the with the temperature, 
Um, but I think the leaf tends to more open up on whether it's got sunlight yep. on or not, and obviously we're underneath uh, slightly. But it's got fake lights. looking at this the Iron Cross. It's it actually looks like a propeller the way it's. Yes, it's yeah, it looks like a turbine drawn in, like a turbine. Yeah. Um, so and they and they do open out at different part at different times of the day, and the other one is Oxalis triangularis, which has got to be one of my favourite. Of the uh, of the oxalis and certainly one of the best of the more summer growing ones, although given the right conditions, it'll literally grow all year round. Mm. So it's almost evergreen as long as it it's, it only sort of goes to sleep when it gets really cold. Um, the one trick I've discovered with triangularis so to to keep the good foliage on them, so that these have got deep burgundy leaves. Um, there's a slight variegation that you only really notice when you look carefully at them, but they're they're almost black. They they're matte. Deep burgundy, and they just suck the suck the light in. Um, the one trick I've noticed: if if you water them a lot on the foliage, they'll get rust. Yeah, okay. So so if you had them in a pot and just put it in a dish and water them from beneath, they're absolutely perfect. So get you, massive you grow all your oxalis in containers. Um, the the iron cross I've got in a pot, but I think it'd be happier in the ground. And the yeah, triangularis okay. is a, a, a very happy in the ground in yep. a dry shade area. Yep. This is the 3CR Garden Show. I've managed to push the wrong buttons, so we're just going to an announcement so we can sort this out. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping all of our content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new T-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855AM. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au You're listening to Community Radio. 3CR. 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 855 AM. Hello, we're back again. So I'm sorry I interrupted you there, Greg. Oh, that's all right. That's all. I, I, I was done with the with those two oxalis, so that, that was perfect timing. I do think oxalis are wonderful, and there are native oxalis, so the move to try and get them all made noxious weeds was obviously a very bad idea. Mm. Yeah, I think I think so, and, and it's hard to tell some of the native ones from some of the weedy ones too. <laughs> Indeed, similar. but we all know the really weedy one, the yellow one. Yeah, yeah, Piscopra is the real pest. Yes, and and the other eight hundred, uh, the other seven hundred and ninety nine species, uh, range between really good and slightly and weedy. Slightly weedy if you let them in the wrong spot. <laughs> we are now going to line eight, 
which is Jill from Malvern. Hello, Jill. Hello. Ah, I've got you. I'm very pleased to hear your voice. Oh, thank you. I want to, I want to ask the question about ribes. I've got the red flowering currants, and I didn't prune it last year, and now it's half a metre tall, or a bit taller than that. Well, no, I can't hear. I can't hear what you're saying. Oh, so so you so you've got a ribes, a red currant. Is that what you said? That it, then yes, you've let yes, it. How old is it? Oh, it's about three years old. And has it borne fruit? Have you had some fruit on it yet? No, no, no. It's the flowering red currant. Oh, okay. But the okay. So it flowered. It flowered last year and the year before, but I didn't prune it. And and now I just want to know: Do I prune it? You know, quite low or to the ground or what? Oh, don't prune it to the ground. No, it'll 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 happily produce flower and again next year um, by flowering off off last year's this year's growth. Um, so if you if you prune it down hard now, you won't get any flower the following year. Um, so uh, I'd be just I'd be just sort of neatening up the end of it a bit, perhaps just keeping it shrubby, keeping it nice shape, and not doing too much to it. Yeah, I've got a flowering red current at home that's about twelve feet tall. Yeah, and I've never pruned it unless it needs you know, like unless it's in the way. Um, and some years that that's covered in in flowers. So uh, I don't yeah removing mine's flowering mine's flowering yeast. Flowering. So if it's flowering and it's if it's flowering and it's growing quite happily, I think that it's that I wouldn't be doing too much to it. I know we had there's one at the Garden of Sud Earth right next to the, the cottage, which was probably 50 years old mm. and it didn't get oh. much attention at all. But they, they don't mind a prune. No, no, you can get, prune them to get yeah. the flowers. But you basically prune, prune them to get them to the size you want. That's yes. right, and then let them do their thing. So if it's getting out of hand, give it a chop. Um, mm. But I'd probably be chopping it. Uh, I'd be. If, after flowering. After flowering, mm. yeah, rather than in its peak. Okay, and can you tell me, could you say the botanic name of the um, fungi that grows on coffee grounds? Because I saw it on Facebook and I've told a number of cafes about it, that there's a, a group that will come and collect their coffee grounds and then bring them the fungi uh, to, you know, cook or sell mm. at their shop. I, I think um, anything that so so the coffee grounds are. Pro- I, I'm not sure which one that you're thinking of, but a, a lot of those fungi, which are the saprotrophic ones, are basically breaking organic matter back down into its parts and feeding off the organic matter. So something like coffee grounds, there's probably a number of species that could actually grow on them. Um, uh, the ones that are eating dead plant material and and breaking the uh, the old cell structures down. So it's not specifically one species. It, it'll be there, a, there'd be a some that probably would prefer it, and mm. there'd be other like you know, there's some of the little mycenas only grow on particular species of eucalyptus, old eucalyptus wood, but there are other ones that'll just eat anything. So mm. so um, yeah, the, the, I'm there'd, there'd be the one I the one I saw on Facebook looked rather like a coral. You know, it was sort of fluted and okay. looked very pretty. Anyway, I'll look it up on the web and then ring in next week with the botanic name for other people if they want it. Good on you, Jill. Thank you very much. That's right, Virginia. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. And now we're going to go to Ruth in Bentley. Ruth, are you there? Yes, yes. Oh, excellent. Thank you. 
Okay. And um, you have a question? Yes, please. Uh, the last three summer seasons, my nectarine tree has been badly attacked by black aphids, and this year it happened on uh, my blood plum as well. So I'm wondering what I could be doing with the next coming months, or if there is anything. I don't like spraying, but if there's anything that I can be doing to the trees to try and deter this a bit more. Uh, how how healthy overall would you say the trees are? They, are they old I'm trees, young very trees? Healthy. Very healthy? No, then they're not. Yeah, they're very healthy. Oh, yeah. they are. Okay. And how old yeah. are the trees? Oh, I guess the nectarine would be five, six years. The okay. plum tree would be a bit older than that. But um, I use, you know, all the things that we talk about for feeding the soil, all the composting okay. and all that sort well, that's, of thing. Yeah, that was the sort of background I was going to see, whether the trees are, are generally stressed. Um, I would So aphids have a close association with ants. Um, so... Really, when you've got an aphid problem, often it's an ant problem as well because the ants farm the, the aphids up the tree. Yeah, so, I know there's a lot of ants around in the garden when I'm working there. Now, ants aren't necessarily a problem generally in the garden no, from, a, know, from an ecological point of view. Of them. But what yeah. you might want to do is try and uh, contain or control the ants on those trees in particular. Um, so whether it be okay. some sort of banding, so, uh, you can use Vaseline or some sort of banding around the around the trunk of the tree to stop the ants moving up and down. Um, if you're using something like Vaseline, you want to be taking it off and on again from time to time. You don't want to have it on there all the time because you'll ring bark the tree. Um, yeah. and, but you can get tapes, or sticky tapes and things like that that the, the ants can't cross um, because if you can control the ant problem, you'll control the aphid problem. Uh, so oh, okay. if, you, if you, want to, you want to go back to its root cause and, what, and where, they're, where they're coming from. Um, so I would be suggesting having a look at how you can interrupt the movement of the ants up and down the stem of the tree or the trunk of the tree. All right. Well, I'll wait till they drop all their leaves and I'll give it a go there. Yeah, and you, you could start doing that any time. Would, you wouldn't have to wait. If, if there are active oh, ant populations okay. moving up and down, I, I would get onto it as soon as you can. All right, then. Well, I'll go and have a good and, look. And and if you can also, I mean, you can attack it from a couple of different ways. If you can see the aphid population, you know, really infestation and you can get to them, um, you can actually sort of spray them off with, um, with just a, with a high-pressure hose mm. or even just you know, mm. pick off the, the worst infestations. Uh, so if, yep. you're, if you're doing it from both ends, doing controlling ants as well as pulling off what you can off the top, you should drastically reduce the population. Okay, well, I'll try anything because um, definitely on the nectarine tree I've been missing out on a lot of fruit. They just, mm. if you blast it with the hose, it doesn't seem then to be getting fertilised and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, all right. have a go at the ants. Well, good luck, Ruth. Thank you. Who has got Thanks a problem a lot. with that? Thanks Bye. Bye-bye. Hello, Lawrence. And yeah. we are next going to Lawrence. So I see I pressed the wrong button again. Lawrence, are you there? No, I've gone. Uh, sorry, everybody, I've pressed the wrong button again. Okay, so we're going to go to Ian, who wants to talk to us about agapanthus. Ian, are you there? 
Well, we ca- oh. covered the agapanthus a little bit earlier. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. with, the, with the seeds, ta- removing the, uh, the I'm seed afraid. Heads. I'm afraid, everybody, that I have done it again. I've pressed the wrong button and made for a mess. So we will just talk about the seeds of the agapanthus and how absolutely necessary it is to get rid, rid of them. Yeah, well, there are purportedly agapanthus varieties that have low seed production or no seed production. I've seen some labelled as eco-agapanthus. And sterile. And sterile. I don't know that there's actually any empirical evidence on that. Um, I know that there are some varieties, some of the, some of the um, cultivated there's varieties. There's definitely other species. Of yeah, there's inapatus and some of those yeah. others. That this is we're talking about. I, I guess the, the, we should be clear here. Ones, we're talking yeah. about hybrid yeah. precox varieties, and yeah. there's some dwarf forms of that. Mm. But that concept of there being a sterile form mm. is... I think probably stretching it. I think there would still be the odd seed, uh, especially if you've got multiple varieties that yeah. can cross pollinate. There's probably more of a chance of them setting up of setting seed setting fertile seed. seed yeah. yeah. So I think if you're concerned about it, I mean, look, they, they're a plant that is tough and hardy. They produce a great looking flower in the middle and, of summer. And when it's a really hot summer, to have that yeah. blue and that white mm. is is a relief. They, yeah, and there are but some nice they selections. Are weedy. So if you've got it, there's a sort of you've got to be a custodian. I, I, when, there was agapanthus in my garden when I moved in, and I pulled them all out because I live right next to the bush. Um, but if I did want to keep them, it's a custodian. It's, it's on me to chop the cedar heads off Take each year. And the other thing is too, they're not weedy everywhere. So if you're in a spot where they're not weedy, or there's not a chance of them becoming weedy, then and they're doing what you want sus- them to do. I suspect with global warming we'll find they'll become more weedy hmm. rather than less. Yeah, yeah, probably. Well, depending on the species and the situation. And if you like snails, they're really good too because yeah. they're like apartment blocks for snails. For snails, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So if you're actually yeah. farming snails, yeah. which most of us don't <laughs> want to do, <laughs> this is the 3CR Garden Show and I'm just going to a community announcement. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Community Radio. 3CR. 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 855 AM. going to make another attempt to talk to our listeners. So we're going to line 10. Hello. Uh, are you there? No. Unfortunately, line 10 seems to have hung up. So you got the, the line right. That, that I got the line the right that time. Yeah. Yeah. I can take doing the phone I'm not sure if listeners are aware how technical this looks yeah. from where I'm sitting. <laughs> well, my, so my so have patience with us. There's two green buttons, a round one and a square one, and I keep pressing the square one, which is cancel, and I keep <laughs> destroying the whole studio. So hopefully next week, I mean, Stephen's first week, he wasn't terribly smooth. I was good last time, but this week I haven't quite excelled. I don't, and as I say, it looks so 
complicated from this side. I'm glad I'm on this P- side. Plants are much easier than yeah, pressing yeah. buttons by the looks. Yes, this is absolutely true. And I'm ve- quite good at plants now, but I've done that for a long time. I've done this for a month. I've done plants for 20-odd mm. years, more. Mm. So It's easy to talk straight off the bat when you... Yeah, <laughs> on, on a subject that you know about. But now. Uh, yeah. Have you got any other plants you wish well, to talk uh, about? First, I'm, I might, if I can, just give a, a quick plug for the garden I work at. Is that, is that okay? Absolutely, so, of so course the, it is. Um, forest Glade up at Mount Macedon, it's, it's sort of had been under a few of the COVID restrictions and whatnot, but they've been pretty much lifted now. So uh, the garden's open pretty much every day from 10 in the morning till 4.30 in the afternoon. I must um, come up. I've never been. Uh, yeah, yeah, please do. And, and if you come on the day that I'm there, I might be able to give you a, a little bit of a guided tour around because it, which I would love it's, a, it's an interesting place there's, there's a lot of stories and, and interesting art and statues and the gardens you know in, in parts park like and then in other parts it's got a lot of so, uh, so character and tell us the story of Forest Glade Garden what, what is it so the, the as it is now sort of started getting planted out after Ash Wednesday um, it's actually in a trust fund now so there's when it's fully open, you can actually go and look at into all the, the, the into the house, well. oh, okay. which is um, an interesting house, <laughs> but it's full of the most amazing artworks and 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 you know there's the largest collection of Napoleonic uh, dinnerware in the in, the, in the world of all the things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so Which might not be of that great interest to, to gardeners. No, no. Oh, I don't know. It's a cute, I'll, I'll come and check that out. <laughs> now, we're going to go to Ian on line 10 again. Hello, Ian. Have we got you? You have got me. Oh, well, that's yeah, very welcome, good Ian. to hear. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah, look, I, I heard you talking about the uh, Agapanthus before, um, and... Uh, um, I got a little bit distracted by something, so I didn't hear all of it. But uh, I've got a, a, a patch, just a small patch that I want to get rid of. There's um, some fairly old, established-looking ones, and then there's sort of young ones growing up next to them. Um, and I've I've tried, I've hit them with. Uh, I don't like using the stuff, but I've, I've hit them with uh, the high high strength um, zero or glyphosate, the, the higher strength one from from the store, um, and it's it's it, it's wilted them a bit, and they're looking a bit brown around the edges. But and I've hit them three times now, but they just don't seem to be. That doesn't seem to be doing a lot of good. I've read a little bit online about uh, various methods: um, uh, covering them with black plastic, or getting the whipper snipper off and chopping them all right down to the roots, and then then spraying them and things like that. What, what would you recommend? Digging. Oh, yeah, my yeah. experience was the only way to get them out was to dig them. And you, you don't have to dig yeah. all the roots out. You just need to get down to the the basal the root but the basal the plate of the roots. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I intend to dig them. I intend to dig them, but I just heard that the, they're just a hell of a lot easier to dig when they when they when, when you kill them. Yeah, they <laughs> rot pretty quickly once they once they once they're gone. Um, yeah, I, don't, I don't think they're that difficult to dig. I mean, the older they are, obviously more difficult. Mm. But they're not deep rooted. No, swinging no. a mattock, you know, coming yeah. in from the side with a mattock. Because your aim's to destroy them, not yeah. plant them somewhere else. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. so you don't need to dig them out whole. Um, so, so, yeah. so, like you say, if you get the whip, take take to them with the whipper snipper, and see if that'll chew as much as it'll chew through with those, and then just a mattock or a sharp shovel. And just chop into the crown. And as I say, if you can get below the the um, the root base, the root the basal plates of the, where the roots come out of the actual bulby part of the plant, um, yep. they're not going to grow back from the no. fleshy roots. You might you might miss one or two, but 
then they're really easy to get out. Yeah, that was yeah. my experience. Because yeah, there yeah. was a whole row of them at my place when I got there, and, and that was the first task. If them. you haven't got all the route, they will come back, but they'll come back small. Small and each, easy to get. Each yeah. time they get easier. Yep. Yeah. As we go, they just get yeah. easier. I've been entirely successful. With what's that? Excavators are really yeah, handy. Yeah, yeah, if you've got a big, yeah. <laughs> for well, that yeah. long driveway, yeah. yeah. Uh, I've got a bird, of yeah, par- a bird of paradise. Now, Ian, that is really something that is impossible to move. And right. Aggie looks really easy by comparison. <laughs> yeah, okay, no worries. So, so really, just uh, rip them down with the, with, the, with the simmer. Don't worry about the poison side of it so much. Just trying to get them out. Yeah, I yeah. would I would dig, and I think the mattock is the best idea. Yeah, or uh, yeah, really no. sharp. I, I've dug up some big ones. Just I, I've got a a, a, a hand wrought shovel from the late eighteen hundreds that I found at a, a market once, and it's my favourite thing on earth. And it doubles as a crowbar. Um, yep. And I sharpen that, and that'll chop. It's like an axe. It'll just. It's got some weight, and it chops through. And something. Yeah, if it's sharp. If it's a matic or mm. a very sharp, heavy shovel, you'll you'll chop through it fairly easily. No worries. Good luck. All right, then. Thanks very much for your help. Good Thank luck, you. Ian. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And we now have Fermi on line eight. Fermi from Fernie Creek. Hello, Fermi. Oh, no. And he's disappeared. Uh, Fermi will ring back, I'm sure. I'm sure he will. So, and the, the other little plug I had was for the um, the Mount Macedon Horticulture Society's got our autumn autumn competitive show on in a couple of weeks. It's on the well, the actual judging takes place on the thirteenth on the Saturday, but it's open to the public on the uh, Sunday. Categories? Oh, a couple of hundred. <laughs> Can you just list them? No. So, so yeah, but everyone. <laughs> It ranges from... What's the pinnacle from, category? What's the, uh, what's, so, so what's the, the showcase? Are, are roses, yep. uh, bulbs, dahlias, mm-hmm. um, hydrangeas, uh, pot plants and hanging baskets. Um, veg? Do they have veg? Oh, uh, yeah, fruit and veggies. Biggest pumpkin? You know? Yeah, all yep. that sort of stuff. Yep. And probably one of the most interesting things, and also from our point of view, um, especially trying to um, encourage people into horticulture, are the kids' sections. Yeah. Um, which I think is the only reason why the show should run, yeah. is to get... Because yeah. I, I actually started at yeah. the Mount Macedon uh, Horticultural Autumn Competitive Show, uh, you know, showing off gladdies and things like that when, uh. I, was, when I was small. So um, oh, they're good the, fun, the kids' sections things. are amazing. Yeah. Some of the things they come up with, with the novelty from anything that grows. Well, and just talking about... There was earlier... <laughs> Oh, it was a month or so ago, probably a couple of months ago. There was a we had a, a southern hemisphere record in Australia for the for the largest pumpkin. Oh, okay. There was a guy up in Queensland yeah, right. that had a uh, Atlantic Giant, which is the the yeah, variety they yeah, all yeah. choose. Uh, and it was I, I can't remember how many how many kilograms, but it was half a ton or something yeah, yeah. on a I pallet. I can't yeah. imagine they're very tasty. Oh no, I don't think they're no, right. no. It's not unless you're they're like not them. eating pumpkin pie. Termites really love them. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just that grow an enormous thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we did it we actually one year did that through diggers. We did a um, take a photo and weigh it, you know, of your of your homegrown produce yep. and had it sort of one of those a marketplace kind of fair, but online or, yep. or through our online community. Uh, it was great to see people getting involved and getting excited. Usually, about their the, big the stuff. largest vegetables are often zucchinis that have been yeah. let go for an extra four hours. When they be, a marrow, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. When, they, when you've missed it in that window. Yeah, that four yeah. hour window. <laughs> we have Lawrence on line seven. 
who wants to talk to us about bat protection. Hello, Lawrence. Oh, hi. Um, yeah, it's um, not exactly bat protection, but uh, protection of the flying foxes by using uh, wildlife safe netting. Um, and I just a very, to... very important point. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm not sure whether everyone is fully aware that the law has changed around the use of um, the kinds of uh, kinds of netting that people can use on their backyard fruit trees. Um, and the new laws under the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act actually commence on September 1 of this year. So as of September 1, the law is sort of such that you can only use a net on a backyard fruit tree if it has holes that are 5 mil by 5 mil or less. The smaller, the better. So something like mozzie netting would be, you know, perfectly, perfectly legal. But anything with holes that you can put your fingers through, anything with holes that are over 5 mil by 5 mil, um, if you can put your little finger through it, it won't be legal. And the reason for that is because we have so many um, deaths and entanglements uh, of wildlife every year in unsafe backyard fruit tree netting, over 300 rescues a, a year in Melbourne alone. And, and more than half of those end up um, in euthanized, the animal having to be euthanized. And it's not only flying foxes. It's, it's which also the microbats, isn't it? Microbats get tangled. Oh, I've seen snakes. Mm. I've seen snakes, snakes get yep. behind them, yeah. Yep. Uh, with 20-odd uh, lorikeets dead in one net. Um, yeah. oh, they get no. strangled in the... There are some... And I you know, um, sort of mentioned that zipping washing bags over fruit is a really good way, a wildlife-safe way to protect your fruit. Um, and with our ageing population, um, uh, me included, the idea of climbing up a ladder and putting nets over trees is less and less attractive. So if people... Yeah just zip washing bags over the fruit they can reach, leave the high fruit for wildlife that are more and more in need of it with climate change and the bushfires and so forth. We have big starvation events. So those backyard fruit trees are playing a really important role in keeping our long-distance pollinators like flying foxes um, going through the lean times. And um, if people just do one thing, um, either remove their fruit tree or zip on washing bags or use safe netting, you know, they, they're really doing the single biggest thing that they can do for conservation um, in, in, in the urban setting, and it's incredibly appreciated. That's, that's great, Lawrence. And I, I would add to that that um, the industry the, uh, is quite aware of this net, net rule, the law change. Um, mm-hmm. I know certainly with us at Diggers, we're phasing out, if not have phased out, the larger um, the larger aperture nets. Um, mm-hmm. We've been carrying vegetable net, which is a small net, so for our vegetable gardens, for cabbage moth and those sorts of things, for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're trans- we've gotten so as you say, the, the law comes in hard in September this year, uh, yep. and you know we're well prepared. We'll be well advanced on that. Um, so mm-hmm. you, that that netting won't be available through us. Oh, fantastic! Mm-hmm. That's that, that's really good to hear. It makes such a huge difference. People, I don't think you know the public really doesn't. Uh, realise just what an impost on the volunteer rescue, wildlife rescue sector uh, netting has been over the years and every year it's a nightmare when the fruiting season starts. You might have 10 rescues in one day. could be on Christmas Day uh, when everybody is having a meeting with their family. You've got wildlife rescuers out trying to you know, cut flying foxes and birds out of netting. And, and Lawrence, I think the vets. other thing yeah. that is important is we actually do, particularly after last year's fires, we do need to share that food, I think. 
Absolutely. That's a fantastic message and one we're trying to get out. It's a big movement as well, sharing with wildlife. So, Absolutely. you know, you're exactly right. You know, people, when people don't realise that, you know, wildlife people look around when they go through the streets and they see someone sharing with their fruit with wildlife, you know, all the activists really give that, that backyard a thumbs up. That's, they're, they're really, these are really great people because they're directly helping wildlife. They're having some fruit for themselves, but they're actually helping keep uh, wildlife alive. So that those flying foxes, for example, that you see in Melbourne today might be the same one you see in Brisbane on your holidays. Absolutely. They're building the forest up Absolutely. and down the country their whole lives. So they can only do it if they're alive. And uh, like all the other species, they're, in, uh, they're struggling in this, uh, this moment in our history. So uh, we do appreciate... Thank you um, very much, that. Lawrence, for that. Fantastic show. Thanks, guys. Bye. bye. Thank you. Bye. And... Well, this morning has disappeared. I, I realise we've only got a few short minutes to go before we're off the air. And I wanted to have a, um, just a quick shout-out to all our Diggers Club members out there. Um, you will be right this, this next couple of days, you'll be getting your next edition of the Diggers Autumn Gardener magazine. Uh, so bumper 72-page issue this time with plenty of content in here. We've got some stories on some of the things that are happening in gardening around Australia and around Melbourne. We've got a, an article on on Joost Backer, who's doing the Future Food Systems Garden, which is a house down on South Bank there where it's all integrated food production, zero waste. All the vegetables there are coming from, from digger selections. Um, so, so all of you out there who are interested in, in what's happening in the world of gardening and sustainability in gardening, have a look at what we're doing uh, at Diggers. We've had a huge influx of new gardeners over the last six months, uh, and it's, it's great to see this renewed activity in, in what, what is our passion, but is spreading into all these other people in the in the community who are. And you do run trials, don't you? We do. We've got a trial garden, um, which uh, there's a photograph of that, which I've put up for the Instagram as well. Um, we've done a grow out of all our tomato, 50, 56 tomato varieties um, on our grow out this year, which is basically us as a seed company doing true to type testing. So, as we were talking about before, you selection of seed and growing the next year's um, generation comes from knowing what you've got. Uh, and we've found, actually, there's one of our varieties in our list, where a variety called Red Fig, that didn't come true to type. So we're going to be taking that off the list. Right. Uh, we're going to go back to the orig- original source, grow that seed out again, and so it'll come off the list for a year, uh, and next year it'll come back on. But I guess that's a, an example of what we do as a seed company to make sure that there's integrity in our seed list. And can people s- come and visit your trials? That trial is a out the back trial. That's a, that's the one where we've, we're running it, um, uh, it just sort of in, in at the back of our property, and it's not open to the public at that property. We we are taking lots of photographs. We'll be doing some drone footage, and we'll be we'll be putting it up through our magazine and and through our social media as well. And your social media page is just if you look up the Diggers Club, there's uh, there's a Facebook page, there's an Instagram page. Uh, in fact, if there's any Diggers Club members out there that are interested in engaging with our Facebook community, we've got a members-only Facebook community. So if you're a club member, you can sign up uh, and then interact with other Diggers members across the, those, across those the country. Those groups are the, are the best. Oh, there's some great there. stuff going on there. there. We've got seven or 8,000 people in there now who are very active, engaged gardeners. Yeah. Well, we're out of time now. I just very quickly want to say that the Herb Society is meeting at Burnley on Thursday the 4th. So people who are interested in the Herb Society... That's this Thursday. Yep, Yep. go to Burnley. And thank you, everybody, for listening to the 3CR Garden Show.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.